Welcome everybody to this evening's discussion on uh, civil society, counterterrorism, and aid post 9-11. And um, I thought I would start, my name is Jude Howell, I'm director of the Centre for Civil Society from the LSE. And I thought I would start off by first of all setting the scene a bit and explaining why we're having this discussion about what has happened to aid and what has happened to civil society post 9-11. After the attacks on the Twin Towers in 9 um, on September the 11th, uh, 2001, um, President Bush declared a war on terror. And this war on terror was made up of a whole set of hard and soft measures. Hard measures including counter-terrorist legislation, um, counter-terrorist regulations and policies and practices, detention, military um, intervention and so on, as well as, and increasingly, a whole raft of soft measures aimed at preventing extremism, engaging with so-called suspect communities um, and so on. And um, in 2006, actually, the British government abandoned the, the phrase, the war on terror. This was followed when President Obama uh, took office uh, in America. He also um, abandoned the language of the war on terror. So we might well think, well, the war on terror, the post 9-11 global security regime is an issue of the past. It's finished, it's done, it was an era that's come and gone we can now move on. What we are arguing, and in the research that we have done, we argue, is that the language of the war on terror may have been abandoned, but the regulations, the practices, the legislation, the um, new arrangements between countries, um, the new arrangements between governments, departments in development, um, diplomacy and uh, security, still remain intact and still remain actually deeply entrenched. And what concerned us was, well, what does this actually mean for civil society organizations, for NGOs, for human rights groups, for women's organizations? What does this mean for international development actors, bilateral agencies, international NGOs like the um, International Red Cross or um, MSF or Afghan Aid? What does this actually mean for them? What does it imply? And so we set about conducting some detailed research on these issues in three countries, in Afghanistan, in Kenya, and India. And we wanted to look at these three countries because they uh, represented different types of political regime and different types of relations with the US and different relations between the state and society. So India was our example of the long-standing uh, democracy. Kenya was our example of a newly democratizing uh, country um, with a civil society that's been very active in changing the political regime um, to a democratic regime, and Afghanistan, which at that time is emerging out of, uh, but still is very much in, uh, in conflict. Um, we also looked at the cases of the US and the UK. And um, in this whole, um, I, I just wanted to point actually to some of the key findings of our research, which are actually um, distilled in two books that we brought out. One is called Counterterrorism, Aid and Civil Society, and the other one is called Civil Society Under Strain, which is an um, edited book. And both of these will uh, be available afterwards for sale at a very, very big discounted uh, price, just, just to mention to you. 
But um, some of our key findings, well, what, what has this meant for civil society? What has it meant for aid? And I just want to point to a few things. In relation to civil society, what we found that was very interesting, well, was that it's not just only about um, introducing legislation that can make or practices that make it more difficult for civil society organisations to operate, but it's also about engaging with certain groups in civil society around security issues in new ways. And um, it's about also targeting bits of civil society in specific ways. Some bits are constructed as bad that need to be watched, surveyed, detained, regulated, and other bits um, can be engaged with and brought into dialogue and supported in projects, for example, that are about preventing extremism. And in particular, in all the countries we looked at, um, the particular suspicion was cast over um, Muslim organisations, Islamic bookshops, Islamic cultural centres, mosques and madrasas and so on. And charities have also been brought into this web of suspicion. It's, it was suggested by Gordon Brown and also the American administration that charities were somehow vulnerable to ab abuse by terrorist organisations. So a whole a veil of suspicion was cast over many charities. Another key finding was that, well, you know, in some countries, politicians were very, very pleased to have this term, the war on terror, which they could actually use um, to provide a nice excuse to crack down on groups they didn't like, on their op political opponents, and there, there are many examples of how different politicians have very um, skillfully manipulated the language of <coughs> war on terror to pursue uh, their own political agendas. In terms of aid, um, what we have found is not that aid has become wholly subjugated to a security agenda, nor that aid, in fact, is totally unaffected by uh, security objectives, but um, that to different degrees, depending on the countries and the donors, we see the security agenda creeping into the activities um, and the thinking of aid agencies. At the macro level, you can see that in the mission statements of bilateral agencies. We can see it in the increased aid flows to frontline states, uh, such as Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, Pakistan. And you can see it in also some of the projects that are being supported, such as the reform of the curricula of madrasas, um, in support to the education sector in uh, Muslim-dominant countries, in attempts to engage in dialogue with Muslim communities. And we also see it in this whole emphasis on hearts and minds as a strategy for countering insurgency, and the increasing role of the military actually doing development with important consequences for aid workers who, uh, and because this raises so many issues around the independence, neutrality, the impartiality of um, humanitarian workers. And also, in, uh, tragically, has led to an increase in the number of deaths of aid workers um, in conflict situations because of the confusion around who is it who is doing development or doing humanitarian work. So all of this raises actually a host of tension, uh, of dilemmas and um, issues um, around um, civil society aid and security, which uh, we're going to look at this evening. For example, how can civil society actors and politicians and lawmakers, how can they best preserve and expand 
the autonomous spaces and the values of civil society in general. And I think that's an important issue because an, uh, um, an unexpected finding in our research was how silent the mainstream civil society, that is in the voluntary sector, the non-profit sector, was in response to the introduction of uh, counter-terrorist legislation and practices. This was the case in the US, it was the case in the UK, it was the case in India, it was the case in Kenya, until actually that non-profit sector itself got directly affected or brought into um, the uh, radar screen of uh, the government. Um, how can civil society actors, political leaders, international institutions, how can they sh ensure actually that minority communities who are rendered suspect under counter-terrorist measures are actually able to organize and to articulate their views and their interests without fear of prosecution or fear of persecution? Um, how should actually aid agencies engage with civil society? Should they, and, and how should they engage with marginalized groups and communities that are being rendered suspicious um, by security agencies or political leaders? Um, how should they engage with security debates? Should they avoid them? Should, how should they engage them? What is their role in ensuring security? What kind of security? Um, and how can actually aid agencies best maintain a focus on poverty reduction when they're actually also under pressure to consider national and global security uh, priorities. So these are some of the challenges and dilemmas which are facing uh, civil society actors and aid agencies today, and, um, and faced because many the legacy of the war on terror is very much evident still, remains deeply entrenched, and so these challenges and dilemmas continue. And so the purpose of this event is to move forward with this debate and consider how best civil society actors and age agencies can actually strategize to engage in security debates and respond to security initiatives in a way that doesn't actually compromise their own priorities and principles. And to discuss these issues, we have an illustrious panel of speakers this evening. Um, on my left, we have uh, Dr. Jeremy Lind from the Institute of Development Studies, who will be talking about these issues in relation to Kenya. And Jeremy and I were actually um, both um, engaged in this research together and are both co-authors uh, co and co-editors of the, uh, the books. Um, to the left of Jeremy is Professor Sally Healy from Chatham House. Sally um, Healy is an expert on the Horn of Africa. Uh, she worked in the Foreign Co and Commonwealth Office um, on, the for on the Horn of Africa. Her two recent books are Lost Opportunities in the Horn of Africa, How Conflicts Connect and Peace Agreements Unravel, um, and Ethiopia and Eritrea Allergic to Persuasion. Next to um, Sally is Elizabeth Winter. Um, Elizabeth is kindly standing in for David Page, who unfortunately was bitten by an unfriendly mosquito uh, somewhere in Sri Lanka and um, is having treatment for that at the moment. So Elizabeth is standing in and we're very honoured to have her. She is very active in the British um, and Irish Agency Advisory Group on Afghanistan. Uh, she was a co-founder of, co of Afghan Aid. Um, and she's also uh, involved in many uh, international networks in Afghanistan as well, and has a long trajectory of work on and in Afghanistan. And to my far left is David Peppiot, 
um, who's international director at the British Red Cross. He's also standing in for Sir Nicholas Young, who is somewhere in an aeroplane at the moment um, and is unable to come. Uh, David Papiat is currently director of the International Division at the British Red Cross. He has extensive experience of humanitarian work um, in many countries, including the Congo, Rwanda, Uganda, Sudan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and North Korea. He's also chair of the NGO Military Contact Group. So I think uh, on the panel we have a vast range of experience and many years of experience to, to discuss these issues. Um, I'll ask each speaker to speak for about 10 minutes and we will then um, open up the floor for questions and answers. The, the event uh, may be um, available on a podcast online and also maybe on video. Um, okay, so I'd like to hand over to Jeremy. Thank you, Jude. Um, what, what we wanted to do was to give a flavor of our research findings from one particular uh, country study that we did on Kenya. And one of our key findings of our work was that the impacts of the war on terror, how the war on terror unfolded in different, um, in different political contexts was really dependent on the nature of political regimes, on the foreign relations between certain countries and Western powers and relating to that their dependence on aid. Um, so with that in mind, I just wanted to start out with a few comments to really set the scene for looking at civil society security and aid in, in Kenya. And some Western security analysts suggest that Kenya faces the greatest terrorist threat in the Horn of Africa. And this may be surprising, of course, because, Somalia, because Kenya is in a region of instability bordering Somalia. Um, however, it is the um, existence of so many soft targets in Kenya um, is a reason why uh, Western security analysts have suggested that Kenya is a key frontline state in the war on terror. And so this, of course, reflects Kenya's strategic value to the United States and other Western interests. And the strategic relevance of Kenya to Western security interests was, of course, highlighted by the 1998 bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi and in Dar es Salaam in neighboring Tanzania. And it was highlighted again by the U.S.-backed Ethiopian invasion of Somalia on Christmas Eve in 2006, which was intended to remove the Islamic Courts Union, which had briefly ruled Somalia in 2006 and was perceived by the U.S. as a radical group with ties to international terrorists. And this action drew Kenya deeper into the prosecution of the global war on terror. But what is also interesting and worth mentioning about Kenya is that it is seen as the strongest democracy in East Africa and also having the most effective and vocal civil society of any country in the region. Thus, we would presume that civil society actors in Kenya would assert their views in political debates and counterterrorism and pressure the government on aspects of its counterterrorism responses. So I want to highlight three key findings from our research from Kenya on the links between civil society, security, and aid. Firstly, is that security interests have merged with development in Kenya. While there has not been a significant change in the overall focus of aid, which continues to be on health and education as part of poverty reduction, 
the use of aid as part of security agendas has negatively affected the perceptions of Western bilateral agencies such as USAID and DFID, um, which are no longer seen as necessary being the guarantors of promoting human rights and democracy. Foreign security assistance and training aid, especially from the United States, were pivotal to the establishment of counterterrorism structures in Kenya after 9-11. The Kenyan government has also played on the perception of a significant terrorist threat in Kenya to receive certain diplomatic advantages. So for example, in spite of disagreement with the United States over counterterrorism legislation, Kenya was one of eight countries globally to receive the largest proportional increase in US military assistance between 2000 and 2008. And also in that same period, Kenya was the largest recipient in sub-Saharan Africa of US counterterrorism funding. What is also interesting and in which we observed in our research was that many donor agencies have sought to build stronger ties with Muslim communities in Kenya, which are perceived as being a threat to Western security interests. So donors such as UNDP, USAID, Danita, and the Foreign Office have all experimented with various projects to support national Muslim organizations, community groups, or madrasas. However, the role of this support has been problematic in reifying certain uh, misconceptions that Kenyan Muslims are radicalized and sympathetic with foreign terrorists. And donors themselves link the newly important emphasis on supporting Muslim organizations and groups to broader security interests and strategies. So as a European diplomat in Nairobi told us, and I quote, why do we really want to engage with Muslim communities? It is because of the threat of terrorism. So unsurprisingly, the nature and objectives of this new donor engagement is an issue for many Muslim leaders and activists in Kenya. And the use of more overt political criteria in targeting certain types of aid has minimized potentially positive effects that development could have made in the situation. So as the head of a Muslim NGO put it, and I quote, the U.S. can put up 50 schools in northeastern province, which is a predominantly Muslim part of the country, bordering Somalia, but this does not change local perceptions. A second key finding from our work in Kenya is that counterterrorism measures have mainly affected Muslim populations and organizations. And many Kenyans themselves see counterterrorism as something that mainly affects Somalis and Muslims, but does not pertain to the rest of the population. Kenyan authorities have introduced a raft of new counterterrorism measures since 9-11, including enhancing intelligence gathering and policing and the surveillance <coughs> of suspect communities which are predominantly Muslims. The Anti-Terrorism Police Unit is a special police branch that was created in the aftermath of the 1998 embassy bombing and has led raids to round up sus suspected terrorists. However, it is mostly Muslim neighborhoods and Muslim residential and business premises that have been targeted. And this has created a perception of a state crackdown on Muslims. So for example, after the US-backed Ethiopian invasion of Somalia, civilians and fighters fled to Kenya in, to, in early 2007. Some of these were arrested as terror suspects and interrogated by the FBI in Kenya. Some of them were sent to Somalia. Some of them were illegally transferred to Ethiopia. And there was also one suspect who was renditioned to Guantanamo Bay. 
and this rendition controversy severely damaged relations between Muslim communities in Kenya and the government, and indeed was a campaign issue in the last election. And we have seen even much more recently, just last month in January, Muslims were protesting in Nairobi against the de deportation orders um, against an imam who is a Jamaican national. The there was a demonstration by Muslims that was broken up violently by police, and Muslims were accusing the police of organizing thugs to attack Muslims and Muslim-owned uh, premises in the central business district. Two protesters were shot and killed by police, while the police did nothing to stop the attacks and looting of Muslim businesses. And the internal security minister justified the police action by claiming that members of the Al-Shahab militia from Somalia had infiltrated Kenya. And the police also carried out, at the same time, several swoops on Muslim uh, neighborhoods in Nairobi and in other cities, leading to the mass arrest of mostly Somali people, including many who were Kenyan nationals. And these actions have occurred alongside other security measures that have targeted Somalis. So for example, the permanent secretary in the Ministry of Internal Security has recently ordered an audit of properties in Eastleigh, which is a predominantly Somali neighborhood in Nairobi. The government has also ordered a freeze on issuing identity cards to residents of northeastern province bordering Somalia on the pretext that foreigners are being issued with IDs. Muslim leaders, for their part, have argued that the alleged presence of al-Shahab is being used as a smokescreen to crack down on innocent Muslims and attempt to portray Muslims in a negative light. But also as part of its counterterrorism efforts, the Kenyan government has increased checks on NGOs. And this closer inspection goes back to the aftermath of the 1998 embassy bombing in Nairobi when several Muslim organizations that provide relief assistance were closed on suspicion of their links with various radical groups. So again, even when we are looking at the crackdown on civil society, it has been mainly Muslim organizations and groups that have been affected. And we have observed a siege mentality has begun to take hold among Muslim organizations. Many Muslim groups are not seeking to formally register because they are resigned to the possibility that they would be denied registration. And the self-censorship is also seen in organizations that are avoiding the use of Arabic names or the word Muslim when they are seeking to register. These anti-terrorism measures, it is worth emphasizing, have been introduced in a legal vacuum as well. Kenya, to date, has not passed counter-terrorism legislation, although the government on several occasions has introduced bills that have been strongly opposed by sections of civil society as well as by certain opposition parliamentarians. And a, a key bill here was the Suppression of Terrorism Bill, which was introduced in 2003. And objections were raised that the bill specifically targeted Muslim communities. So in this regard, a clause that caused considerable concern created a new offense for people who would dress in such a way that they would arouse suspicion that they might be linked to terrorist groups. And so this caused a lot of concern within Muslim communities who thought that their dress would be criminalized if, for instance, they were wearing a skullcap or the traditional Muslim robe. A coalition of human rights activists and organizations through the Kenyan Human Rights Network organized a concerted campaign against the bill, which was effective in pushing the Attorney General to withdraw the legislation. 
However, since then, the government has tried to introduce provisions that were in the original Suppression of Terrorism Bill into other legislation. And our last finding that I want to, um, to mention is in relation to the responses of civil society to these various counterterrorism measures. And while <coughs> Kenyan civil society has resisted the introduction of counterterrorism legislation, it has been, it has, and it has been more vocal than other civil societies in the region in this regard. It is still mainly Muslim organizations and human rights groups and lawyers that have spoken out. Mainstream civil society, and particularly churches, which led the democratization struggle in Kenya in the 1990s, have been notably silent in protesting the introduction of many measures or the targeting of Muslims. And this is surprising because although new restrictions on the spaces to organize um, outside of the state were integral to proposed counterterrorism legislation and therefore would affect all groups, we have still yet to see a widespread campaign in Kenya against proposed counterterrorism measures. Church clergy have been silent as well on the treatment of Muslim in counterterrorism operations. And the media, for its part, has tended to cover the human rights violations of terror suspects from a security perspective without necessarily interrogating the premise of these counterterrorism responses by the government. And again, this also feeds into this public perception then that counterterrorism in Kenya is mainly an issue that affects Muslims and therefore doesn't concern other parts of society. And therefore we have seen a lack of a wide-ranging response by other civil society actors outside of Muslim groups. So although the space for political debate and discourse is comparatively large in Kenya compared to other countries in the region, one reason for civil society's muted responses is that it is fractured and deeply divided along ethnic and regional lines. So again, this ties into the, um, to the idea that counterterrorism is something that affects Muslims, and therefore other groups do not need to be concerned. And these divisions in civil society have become more apparent since 2002, when a reformist government was elected, in part through support that was being given by civil society. However, what we've seen since then is a very significant fracturing of Kenyan civil society and a lack of common ground on finding issues that a wider range of groups may come together to organize around. Thank you very much. Salahidi is going to... Um, Talk about the Horn of Africa, and that's a neat follow-on from Jeremy's presentation. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to focus mainly on civil society and aid practice um, in the two particular countries of um, Somalia and Ethiopia. Um, although the Horn of Africa is really a wider region that should comprise um, Sudan and Eritrea and Djibouti as well. And there are growing links between the Horn and Kenya and Uganda, as well as across the, across the sea to Yemen. Um, now, the Horn of Africa is not a main theatre in this, uh, hasn't been a main theatre in the global war on terror, but it is an important sideshow and quite a long-running one. I think it's important to stress that um, 
the the uh, events in uh, or the changes that have taken place in in, in the Horn of Africa since 9/11 um, had got had got quite a lot of underpinning um, from 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 the years before that. Um, Jeremy's already mentioned the um, the U.S. Embassy bombings of 1998, which were, um, of course, really the first examples in the region of what we'd now recognize as, as trademark kind of Al-Qaeda attacks. Um, but in addition to that, Osama bin Laden had been based in living in Sudan during the early 90s, and there were radical Somali jihadist groups, one in particular, the um, Al-Itihad al-Islami, which was uh, already functioning in the region during the 1990s before this new kind of paradigm came into being. Um, now, just to, to, to um, set the scene for Ethiopia and Somalia, I mean, all, all the definitions we use of, of civil society stress that it, 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 its existence in relation to the state. And Ethiopia and Somalia are remarkably dissimilar states. Um, within Africa, they're really at the opposite ends of the state fragility spectrum. Um, Somali society is radically uncentralized in its political traditions, and the Somali state has never been a strong state. Whereas next door in Ethiopia, um, there's a very strong tradition of centralized hierarchical authority. And although there's been a lot of revolutionary change in Ethiopia and restructuring, the Ethiopian state has got progressively stronger over the last 30 years or so, whereas the Somali state has become progressively weakened and um, fragmented. Now, what does that mean for um, aid policies? Uh, two things, really. In the 1990s uh, you know, development thinking, the, 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 the real partner of choice, certainly for DFID and I think for most development agencies, was um, a strong government in charge of something like a capable state. There was a very strong preference to work with, with powerful governments. So Ethiopia in that way was an attractive development partner regardless of any other consideration because of the nature of the, the, nature of the, the operation they ran. Whereas Somalia was um, a much less attractive development partner leaving aside all other considerations because there wasn't a government at all and because the only vehicle for um, assistance was through civil society. Now, um, DFID and I, I, I would imagine other development agencies, but I'm, I, I took uh, and I take the lead from the DFID website on this, um, they've always recognized that civil society organizations can and do play an important role in providing services to the people where the state is fragile or incapable. And this was very much the case in Somalia during the 1990s, after the decline and fall of the state. Um, Somali civil society organizations with very wide-ranging sources of income from the private sector, from Islamic charities, from Western donors or from the diaspora, gradually took on nearly all the service delivery functions that would normally be undertaken by a state or government. Um, and in Mogadishu and much of the south of Somalia, though less so elsewhere, the largest and most capable and successful of these operations were run by the Islamists. Um, there were Hawala money transfer companies and mobile phone networks oiling the economy. 
Um, these organizations were responsible, responsible for education and health services on a really remarkable scale. But the politics and security during the 1990s remained largely the preserve of the warlords. Now, the contrast with Ethiopia could hardly be greater. The government in place there was really committed and still is to a statist model of development. And they're very uh, deeply suspicious of, of pluralism and largely intolerant of civil society activity. So through the 1990s, Ethiopia and Somalia were on very different trajectories with civil society really filling all the social and political space in Somalia, but systematically denied space in Ethiopia. Um, and in terms of the dominant aid paradigm, Ethiopia was the obvious partner uh, of choice, as well as enormous poverty in the country and a huge population. So this, uh, if we, that, that, that's, as it were, to set the stage for what happened after 9-11 and the new shift in thinking. Um, the new thesis that emerged that was, a real, that was a real problem for Somalia was this idea that the weak and ungoverned state, such as Somalia, was not just a menace to its citizens or a poor model for service delivery, but it was actually an active danger to international security. And as a Muslim state, it was suddenly came to be viewed under you know, what Jude just described, the web of suspicion, a haven, a potential haven for terrorists or a place offering um, uh, spaces for terrorist fund funding. So Somalia found itself in the headlights as a kind of dangerous, ungoverned space and a suitable case for, at least in development terms, a suitable case for state building. Now, the West readily followed Ethiopia's lead in determining what should be done to bring Somalia under what seemed to them to be what we could call proper control. Um, and a pro-Ethiopian government emerged from Somali peace negotiations in 2004, but it never got established. And then in 2006, as Jeremy has mentioned, and much to Ethiopia's dismay, the Islamic Courts Union took over from the warlords in Mogadishu. And it was the international reactions to this that brought Somalia and Ethiopia firmly into the global war, of terror, war on terror. Um, the Ethiopians took action against the courts and installed um, this discredited transitional federal government in its place. Um, in terms of outcomes, I think I could just confidently say it was a mistake. Um, the presence of Ethiopian soldiers who were represented locally as agents of the United States had a powerful radicalizing effect on the Somali population. And it was out of this bungled attempt at regime change that the Shabab was born. And they're a far more violent and extreme organization than the Islamists who were driven out in 2006. Um, in, the, in, the, in the context of this Ethiopian occupation and the installation of the TFG and the emergence of the Shabab, the um, flowering civil society of Somalia has more or less been decimated. And all the work that was being done in, in, in Somali cities in the south uh, through the late 1990s has really been destroyed and the people who were trying to do it have for the, for the most part now had to run away although they had remained in, in Somalia through difficult circumstances. So the effect on Somali civil society of this uh, introduction of, of the war on terror has been particularly devastating. Um, aid in volume to Somalia has increased quite dramatically um, but 
it's all geared around this idea of state building and a lot of it has a military focus. The idea is to you know, build a, a military capability for the TFG or to fund AMISOM as the peacekeeping force to keep them in power. Um, but the civil society activities have been completely compromised politically and are no longer really the channel that they used to be. Um, just uh, briefly on, 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 on Ethiopia, Ethiopia stands very, very comfortably um, in its relations with the Western world and is a huge beneficiary of development assistance. Um, the American, the American um, government machinery is very explicit about the basis for this and the, you know, the current uh, State Department um, you know, website on, on Ethiopia confidently states that um, Ethiopia is seen as the linchpin to stability in the Horn of Africa. Um, its aid budget continues to soar um, and yet domestically Ethiopia's uh, treatment of civil society is getting more and more restrictive. Um, legislation has been passed now to stop um, local NGOs of any description being involved in anything like advocacy or anything that could be remotely political. So it's service delivery and nothing else that's allowed. Um, there hasn't really been a significant change with the Obama administration. Um, there's a particular program which is regional in focus around which, uh, of, of which again Ethiopia is the center, um, a program called the East Africa Regional Security Initiative. And um, currently the Obama administration is planning to double its support for this initiative which includes um, $10 million to help special units in national armies counter terrorism threats mainly emanating from Somalia. So um, Ethiopia is continuing to be seen in this key strategic role. So um, events in the Horn tend to confirm the broad thesis that strategic security concerns have come to determine aid policy and to have done so to the disadvantage of civil society. Um, but there's just one small caution on which I'd like to end, which is um, to stress that there are very good grounds for Ethiopia to be assisted in its own right. Um, Ethiopia does meet the criteria uh, as a country that should be receiving development assistance. It's got um, a huge population of 74 million, and 81% of them live below the poverty line. Um, perhaps as many as 10 million people are at risk of um, starvation. It's number 170 out of 177 on the Human Development Index. So there really is a case for Ethiopia to receive a lot of development assistance. Um, and I don't think that, that aspect of the situation should be overlooked, even while we recognize the strategic and military components that have made Ethiopia an attractive development partner as well. Thank you very much indeed. Um, now, Elizabeth Winter um, from Bath will speak on Afghanistan. Yes, I've been asked to talk about the challenges, tensions and dilemmas in relation to Afghanistan. And in terms of uh, challenges, I think security is the one that above all affects Afghans, aid workers and everybody involved in the country. 31 aid workers were killed in 2008, for example, and the figure is likely to have been greater in 2009, though it hasn't been computed yet. 
It's important for us to continue to support Afghans in their quest for the improvement of conditions in their country, but it's becoming more and more difficult for people to do so. Difficult in terms of moving around, difficult in terms of running programs, difficult in terms of increased costs for security management, and difficulties inviting um, and recruiting staff to come and work there. As you can imagine, if you have family members who are interested in doing that, you're likely to want to discourage them at the moment. In terms of tensions, civil-military relations uh, have been an issue that uh, many of us are trying to work on. There are stereotypes, for example. The military, for example, some of the less thinking ones will tend to say, all you want to do is to come to us when you're in difficulty and you need to be evacuated. There are preconceptions on the other side too. Uh, all the military want to do is to be involved in fighting, and that's not necessarily true, of course. Um, all you want to do is to take over the administration of aid money and put it through the military instead of through civilians. If you've seen the latest Conservative Party Green Paper, uh, you'll see that this holds some sway within the, the Tories. There are dilemmas in relation to how far to relate to the other players, whether they're military or diplomatic. The agendas are different and perceptions can be a problem. We've stood up against our own government, the British government in the past, when they said that anybody relating to the Taliban would not get uh, DFID funding. And all except one agency that had no choice refused therefore to accept the money. But by and large, we try and cooperate to at least exchange information. Uh, we've worked together on drawing up civil military guidelines, for example. Our work is rather different, uh, but we feel it's helpful if we relate to each other and give each other information, say exactly how we feel about things that are being planned. We join, for example, in discussions on the comprehensive approach and, and into other security debates. However, one of our problems is the quick changeover of staff in the military, the short terms of engagement they have. And that's an issue when we're trying to um, continue a dialogue and uh, change people's impressions of what they might be able to do. But we are willing to do so. Another dilemma for us at the moment is how to relate to the Stop the War Coalition and others who are arguing strongly that soldiers should be removed from Afghanistan. As aid workers, of course, we don't take a position on that, but many of us will have marched against the war in Iraq, and it's very, very difficult now to work out exactly how we should react if people are saying Afghans um, should have soldiers removed from their country as well. So there are a host of these uh, dilemmas, tensions and challenges for us to, to look at. Another one is self-imposed restrictions. If people fear retaliation or, for example, during the election, implied or actual threats to their physical safety, they will be less likely to want to speak out or to do it um, against those kind of threats and be uh, rather fearful all the time of what might happen to them. In the early days of the so-called War on Terror, there were problems for smaller and even larger NGOs with the counter-terrorism measures that were put into operation. Getting money transferred because of the suspicion of what it might be used for was an example. 
that seems to have lessened now in relation to Afghanistan, but it is still very much a problem in relation to Iran, where there are sanctions, of course, in place. There's a very efficient harbourless system uh, operating in Afghanistan, and that was difficult to access for a while because of these regulations. Protecting the interests of marginalized and poor groups is a key issue. And there are ways in which civil society actors and political leaders and international agencies can assist. Civil society organizations and actors can, for example, be a conduit for the voices of Afghans. Taking a principled approach and a decision that BARG, for example, British and Irish Agencies Afghanistan Group has taken, that's the umbrella group that's been going for more than 25 years of the British and Irish Agencies working there, has decided that it will take this uh, approach and try and get Afghan voices into the debates and the decision making, preferably by getting them physically there and where not, making sure that we know what they would have said and do our best to represent them in that. Another way in which we can assist is making sure that the capacity development that they need and they want is provided in a way that is effective. So we need also to evaluate that and evaluate the programs. In the early days of the war, we encouraged faith-based NGOs to become members of BARG, and we're very proud that we do have Islamic uh, NGOs because we can point to the fact that they too work in the area, they too um, have to do what they can against these uh, tensions and dilemmas. Engagement with civil society is often not considered, and when it is, institutions are at a loss about how to actually do so. They've also been a scapegoat for uh, the government of Afghanistan, for their own failings, and some anti-Christian sentiment continued after the Taliban left. Our recommendations, however, would include listening to Afghan views, appointing people who are able to relate to civil society activists, and who have the mandate and the time to do so. Make sure that you, if you have conferences, you really do consult people in advance, like the big London one that's just taken place, and that there is follow-up, not as an afterthought. DFID now seems to be taking this more seriously and they're currently consulting about it and how they might actually support future development of civil society. And there should be a genuine attempt to engage and not just talking to the usual suspects. NGOs, of course, are part of this and they've played a key role, but they're not the exclusive actors. What they have done is, developing, is being involved in developing an NGO law which has been very useful in regulating the sector. Civil society actors themselves have responsibilities to be clear about what they think, what they do and do not want in the way of support and therefore they need to come to together to debate and address the complexities of the issues, setting aside staff time to do so like the donors do, like the military does. Many of them have now learned English. It's a sad fact that they have to do this in order to get their points across and to be heard. But donors and others can help by ensuring that where necessary, interpretation and translation is available because listening to people is key to everything. The media should try harder to ensure that they report more widely and accurately instead of, as now, in far more depth about the military aspects of what's going on. 
with the occasional human interest story, which can seem to come as light relief for the journalist as much as for the audience. But they complain, the journalists, that editors don't want these stories. They want the military ones. So civil society should be cultivating the journalists who are willing to put these stories across and provide them with the material, provide them access to the field to see what is actually going on. And when this has been done, it's very valuable. Communications people we have found can be heavy-footed gatekeepers in the debate, whether they're working for NATO or governments, but we persevere. The question was asked how we can ensure that partners are not linked in any way to listed terrorist groups. I think that we would be informed very quickly if they were, either by Afghans or by people we know in the government. A more insidious problem, perhaps, is that in every country you have the corrupt con men and women, and they're very clever at persuading people to trust them. We tended to say in Afghanistan that everybody else's Afghans were the ones who were uh, at fault, and people were naive in believing them, and that our Afghans, of course, could be trusted. Equally, many Afghans have found it hard to trust expatriates, having been patronized and abandoned by them in the past. But by the same token, many agencies have relationships with Afghans, professional working ones in relation to aid and development, that have gone back decades, and there is mutual respect and trust. Maintaining a poverty uh, reduction focus is essential. The agencies we're involved with, and we also work with the European Network for NGOs in Afghanistan, have re reviewed this recently, and we are all considering how to bring back uh, the basic needs of the Afghan men, women, and children as a primary focus for what all the international community are involved in. McChrystal's emphasis in protecting civilians is a welcome change of emphasis. Um, the results of the recession, however, have left ma many agencies making drastic cuts in staffing and programs, and this is another issue for us. Also, Afghanistan is a highly political issue and attracts a lot of attention. It attracts a lot of money. Uh, one and a half billion pounds will go to the, sorry, dollars will go to the um, Commander's Fund, for example, with very little control of how it's spent. So our concern is, will money be spent wisely? The report of the eminent jurist panel at the end of last year on terrorism and counterterrorism and human rights is entitled Assessing Damage, Urging Action. And I think it's well worth reading because it talks about how uh, the painstakingly built up legal framework, the international legal order has been put in jeopardy recently by focusing on short-term gains, gains and ignoring the human costs. There are plenty of reports of things like this happening in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a culture of impunity and it tends to lead one feeling shamed and guilty by association in terms of torture, administrative detention, cruel and human, uh, inhuman degrading treatment, etc. And that is an issue that we have to, to look into. We've had difficulties in getting visas for civil society actors to come to Europe, but this pales in comparison to the moral high ground being flattened in this way. I'm being told I have a very short time, so I'll skip to the end and a few recommendations. 
If you'd like to get more information on civil-military relations, uh, go to the BARG website, www.barg.org.uk, which has a very interesting report, Afghan Hearts, Afghan Minds, which looks at this from the Afghan perspective, and a policy paper was produced as a result. Civil society um, has, in fact, been developing in Afghanistan, and this is heartening. Men and women are now able to express what they need and to research things, to give them the evidence to back this up. And while lip service has been paid to civil society in developing it in the past, at least we haven't got the problems that we've heard of from other speakers this, is, this evening. And I think we should continue to assist civil society in Afghanistan in every way we can. Thank you. Thank you very much. And finally, to David Pepiat, um, International Director of the British Red Cross. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jude. Um, I'd like to just add some reflections from uh, a Red Cross perspective, which I, I think is important to recognize is quite a, a narrow perspective of the whole broader civil society because I'm particularly going to look at some of these issues from a humanitarian aid and a humanitarian aid practitioner's viewpoint rather than um, perhaps reflecting from the whole breadth of civil society. Um, and to share very honestly some of our challenges uh, and dilemmas that we're facing uh, operationally um, in the changing context, influenced significantly by the changing security environment. And I think my first point I'd like to, to, to say is that over the last decade, our operational landscape um, as a humanitarian organization, like other humanitarian NGOs, has changed significantly. The crises we're responding to are, are very complex and overlapping. The security environment, state fragility, environmental vulnerabilities, as geopolitics politics collide in places like Haiti, as most recently we've seen, the rising number of people displaced within borders, the challenges of the urban context, the asymmetric dynamics of recent conflicts that have really challenged the traditional legal frameworks that, of war, and particularly the increasing context of intrastate conflict and violence. The international aid system, particularly the humanitarian aid system, has struggled at times to present itself as distinct from the political and security agendas pursued, for example, by the US and its allies in Iraq and Afghanistan. And at the same time, we as aid agencies are operating in an increasingly crowded arena with a wide range of actors involved in providing aid, including international and local humanitarian agencies, often branded together as civil society, government, non-governmental, military actors, private military companies, the private sector, the environment we're operating in is increasingly complex. I think this was experienced for me in a very real way only um, a week ago when I was in Haiti and I found myself in the heart of Port-au-Prince in a very congested traffic jam where um, we were trying to get to a distribution point and there is a huge movement of people in the middle of Haiti. And I found myself literally in a traffic jam that consisted of uh, US military personnel uh, Minusta peacekeepers, Brazilian UN peacekeepers, um, uh, Canadian military, uh, uh, a whole row of NGOs and aid agencies in their white land cruisers, 
Um, and everyone was trying to get out to sort out the traffic jam because we weren't moving anywhere. Um, and then from nowhere appeared a Jordanian SWAT team that jumped out of a, a vehicle. But it summed up for me the complex environment and how the Haitians perceived us and whether they understood the different identity that we all represented or were we just outsiders in nice air-conditioned land cruisers. The perception of aid has changed significantly and the 900 NGOs that are present in Haiti are branded as civil society. So our understanding of what civil society and the identity that we bring as different actors is extremely complex. Just a word briefly on the Red Cross movement uh, as we grapple with some of these issues. In the conflict context, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, leads our response in conflict with a legal mandate to protect and assist victims of armed conflict and uphold the Geneva Conventions. And this is particularly um, important in terms of the, some of the issues we've been discussing today with regard to the conduct of hostilities and the, um, the issues regarding detention of, of um, detainees and protection of civilians. In a, a national context, the Red Cross and Red Crescent operates in partnership with national societies like the Afghanistan Red Crescent, the Somali Red Crescent, the, uh, the Haitian Red Cross. These are national organizations, auxiliary of government, but also closely associated and linked to civil society. So to, to brand us as one organization of civil society, we occupy a, a complex place internationally and nationally, but we're very much sharing the values and principles of civil society. The Red Cross stands for humanitarian action, which is neutral and independent. By not taking sides bet between parties to a conflict, we know again and again from operational experience that we improve our chances of bringing assistance and protection to those in needs. Neutrality and impartiality is essential to ensure our legitimacy, acceptance and access. We work hard to ensure our identity and as I mentioned that's increasingly challenging and important and the, the principles of our identity as a neutral, independent, humanitarian organization is clearly perceived and hopefully respected through continued dialogue with all parties to a conflict. And that's one point I think is really important, uh, is this continued dialogue with all sides to a conflict. In many places, the Red Cross, like lots of other civil society organizations, has been present for decades, patiently building trust and relationships over time with armed actors, governments, and affected populations. This is an ongoing process and something we do at all levels of the organization and find increasingly important the need to contextualize that and understand what, how we are perceived in different cultural contexts. Neutrality, though, is an active, not a passive stance. Providing neutral, independent humanitarian aid means remaining distinct from other actors, not taking a political position, maintaining our independence separate from the political objective, for example, of stabilization and development work, not accepting armed es escorts and maintaining that crucial dialogue with all actors. The Red Cross sees neutrality as a principle, but also essentially a tool that allows us to operate effectively across the lines of a conflict. So just moving on to some of the key challenges um, arising from the fight against terrorism. An international presence in Afghanistan and Iraq has stretched on. There's been an increasing drive from cross-government unity and joint action, the comprehensive approach, as Elizabeth mentioned. 
in the UK and the US, this comprehensive approach has extended to desire to integrate the work of humanitarian agencies into these military projects. Colin Powell famously described NGOs as force multipliers. Hillary Clinton has confirmed that the three Ds of defense, diplomacy and development are integral to US foreign policy. In the UK now, both government and opposition policy on development and defense explicitly links development and within that humanitarian assistance to national security. In Afghanistan in December 2008, a NATO press relief read, humanitarian assistance operations are helping both the people of Afghanistan and coalition forces fight the global war on terror. We've seen provincial reconstruction teams operating as part of the wider political project. This is at the cost of the projects they construct and not always targeted to reach the most vulnerable. Communities accepting such assistance are at risk of attack for collaborating with the International Security Assistance Force. And the distinction between neutral and impartial humanitarian agencies and others is increasingly blurred and weakened. The humanitarian sector is also beginning to examine its own role in this. Some agencies, large and small, accept the limitations and conditions on their movement and activities, reasoning that this is the cost of doing business in contexts like Afghanistan and Iraq. The result has been heightened danger for humanitarian aid workers, as Elizabeth said, and much more importantly, affected populations, and ultimately reduced access for life-saving assistance. 2008 was the worst year on record for aid worker safety, with a 61% increase in the relative attacks per numbers of aid workers in the field. The 2008 fatality rate for international aid worker exceeds, exceeds that of UN peacekeepers. In Afghanistan, where many NGOs work on state building and development issues such as reconstruction and advocacy in perceived alignment with ISAF, opposition forces have at times labelled certain humanitarian agencies and, importantly, the recipients of their aid as legitimate targets. But it's not all bad and grim news. We do have increased uh, examples of when access and ac acceptance has um, has worked. Recently the ICRC was able to agree with the Taliban that the UN and government health workers could vaccinate 1.6 million children in the south of Afghanistan. But this was due to the credibility the Red Cross had built up over time. It has also recently been allowed to visit people in Taliban places of detention. But only because of hard-earned um, legitimacy and acceptance on both sides of the conflict. Dialogue is critical, just as Elizabeth stressed. It's critical that we maintain fora for dialogue with the military. Aid agencies and government can discuss problems and improve mutual understanding. At the Red Cross, we chair one such group in the UK, and as a result, the British military have removed the word humanitarian from the title of their disaster relief manual and have recently published a booklet sharing the space to disseminate information about humanitarian agencies principles and approaches and how a military can work effectively in understanding roles and responsibilities between civil society actors and the military and state actors. Finally, a very brief word on international humanitarian law. Our president of the ICRC described the respect for IHL in the midst of fighting as its single biggest challenge. Under the Geneva Conventions, which have been ratified by every country, state parties must ensure that their forces act in accordance with international humanitarian law and bring the perpetrators of serious violations of international humanitarian law to justice wherever those violations occur. The Red Cross continues to urge that states and the international community as a whole, as a whole support compliance with IHL.
there has to be space for truly neutral and independent humanitarian action, completely separate from political or military objectives. Neutrality is not morality or a search for justice. It is very simple. As Antonio Tonini argues, neutrality is not an end in itself. It is a means to fulfill the humanitarian imperative. Perhaps three things we can discuss and reflect as we go forward in tonight's debate. Firstly, how to ensure the distinction and separation between humanitarian aid and the political and military objectives. Secondly, to how to ensure the dialogue that we, both Elizabeth and I and others have mentioned, continues at all levels, between all parties, and in a way that does not jeopardize the safety and security of humanitarian staff and beneficiaries. And finally, how can we think more creatively how to disseminate and apply international humanitarian law effectively, and perhaps what is the role of civil society in holding governments to account for adhering to international humanitarian law? Thank you. With a very, very rich presentations from our speakers, we have now about 20 minutes for questions and answers. There's also a reception afterwards where you can also continue to ask uh, questions with speakers in a more uh, intimate environment. So let me open up the floor for questions. And please could you um, give your name and institution and also um, please make sure it's a question, not uh, an alternative speech. Thank you. Yes, please. There's a floating microphone going around. My name is Sally Elliott, and I was a very active member of the Red Cross until my retirement. Um, as Mr. Pepeout has referred to the Geneva Conventions, which are the laws that the Red Cross abides with on humanity, we also have the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. We now have a European Declaration of Human Rights. Does that impinge on anyone else's work in the international scene, or is the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights completely ignored? Okay, that's a very technical question, so I'll just hand it quickly over to David. Well, I'm not an international humanitarian law lawyer. Um, I think you're, you're right. One of the things that is very challenging is, I, is the system, the whole process for compliance and adherence and holding governments to account. And certainly in the international humanitarian law context, we need to do much more to ensure that laws that the, the, the Geneva Conventions are not just um, disseminated, but there is some compliance and accountability for that. And that, requires, that applies exactly the same for the UN Declaration. Um, I, I, one of the things that struck me as a practitioner is often the field of international humanitarian law is held and maintained by the, the legal specialists and dealt with um, at, and isn't always applied operationally for us as practitioners. So the whole adherence to what IHL means for us in a context like Afghanistan and Iraq is as practitioners and for other civil society actors, I just think simply isn't known. I think we have a lot of work to be done in the Red Cross to ensure that the rest of civil society organizations and particularly the NGO community in Afghanistan are well, um, well, uh, well understand the legal obligations of IHL and how that ap applies to the, the framework that we're operating in Afghanistan. I, I cannot answer on the term in the context of UN and EU law. 
Maybe others can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Got two questions, so I'll take those two together <coughs> first. No, Could um, you say who you are, please? Yes, yes. Eve Middleton Kelly, LSE Complexity Group. I was particularly interested in the um, Somalia example of how civil society took on the functions of the social and political um, aspects. And I was wondering if you can reflect on how did that distributed self-organization was able to actually function, and as you said, flower, and whether any of the others can actually think of similar um, examples where, again, um, the distributed non-centralized um, activities are taking place that are actually filling in the role of what um, uh, perhaps governments m may need to do. Thank you. And our second question was... Uh, my name is Akiru Damichani from Christian Aid. Uh, my question is really for Jeremy, and uh, it's on his his observations about the events of January in Kenya when the, um, the radical uh, Muslim preacher was, um, was forcefully evicted from the country and the, the routes that followed. Uh, it's really about the wider implications, uh, security, or, or security implications for the country um, because uh, we saw for the first time um, uh, mainly uh, Somali, the Somali youths with um, with Al Shaba flags, um, and they, it took another dimension where we had other ethnic communities uh, taking sides against the predominantly Somali, Somali or Muslim groups, um, basically accusing them of interrupting their business activities. Um, well, I don't. Well, I don't think the, the police handled it properly. I see that there's, there's um, uh, potentially um, wider implications for, for the future. Um, you could comment further on that. Thank you very much. So the first question, Salih, is on um, um, society in Somalia taking on political functions and, um, and how it affects how other groups flower. Um, thank you. It's it's. It's quite a complicated story, and it took rather a long time. Um, and the Somali situation is, is, is unusual because it's been 20 years without, um, without government, which really, really is, is much more than governmental breakdown. It's um, uh, much more of a, a much more um, long-lasting thing. Um, but the references I was, I was making to were particularly um, in Mogadishu, and really, there were a host of different organizations doing different things that gradually over time started to uh, work together, um, particularly in fields like um, education. And there was a, a really enormous network of schools that, 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 that joined up over time to provide education to um, thousands, of, thousands of youngsters. And this was an Islamic, you know, basically an, an Islamically um, inspired uh, uh, process and has been described, I've heard it described as, as, a, as a, a revolution in education from the perspective of those who were doing it. And it went right up to university level education um, and it was all privately funded. 
Um, but the, the business community in, in, in Mogadishu particularly you know, gave money to, to, to establish universities. And of course there was other money coming from, from Islamic charities. And Western donors also did a lot to build um, uh, civil society in, in Somalia, particularly in the south. And people were doing quite extraordinary uh, sort of peace building activities and, and things of that, of that sort. With, in which the, the European Commission was particularly generous in, in promoting it. Um, but it was always fragile. Um, it was always fragile. There wasn't, a, you know, there wasn't a sort of, you know, one individual running any of these things because it was, it was civil society. And it is just an extraordinary feature of Somali society that they can manage in a very fragmented, uh, very fragmented systems. Um, and within that the business relationships, but also the clan networks are, are important in building trust and, and, and creating ways of operating that are, that are not, uh, not, not state-like, but can be very effective in some aspects of service delivery. But um, it never reached the stage where it was really effective in the security sector, um, except for the very brief period when the Islamic courts took control of, of Mogadishu. Um, and it's not clear that it would have become an enduring, <laughs> an enduring system, even if even if the events had turned out differently. Thank you, and Jeremy on Kenya. Um, thank you for the question. Um, it's it's a very it's a very good question, and I think um, it, firstly it goes back to the 2006 um, invasion of um, Ethiopian forces in Somalia, and what we're seeing now in Kenya is a fallout four years on um, of that um, bungled attempt by the U.S. through Ethiopian proxy forces to impose a regime. And, um, you know, as Sally, um, as Sally uh, explained in detail, this has had some radicalizing um, effects in terms of youth sympathizing um, with the al-Shahab. And there's two different perspectives. I mean, the Kenyan security establishment obviously sees this as a pressing challenge, how to respond to um, the alleged presence of, uh, of, of al-Shahab members mixing with um, Kenyan Somali communities. But the human rights perspective um, would emphasize that the police response fits a pattern in which Muslims have been targeted and have been illegally detained. And, um, you know, there was other speakers have emphasized the importance of dialogue. And I think that's really what is missing here, is that the security establishment is operating very separately from the local leadership in these communities, the civil society, if you will, um, which could provide you know, some level of contact and, and intelligence. And unfortunately, it is the counterterrorism measures themselves, counterterrorism responses by the Kenyan government over the years that has really severed those ties. There is no trust between Muslim communities and the, and, and the state in Kenya today. And I think that it's going to pose a huge challenge for how the government is going to respond to this security challenge. Thank you very much. Um, I'll take three questions. Um, two down here and the gentleman there, but I'll next round. Yeah. Um, can you say who you are? Uh, my name is Amanda. I'm a postgraduate student uh, at LLC in 
some structural issues is necessarily the creation of a, a big government, a big democratic government. Um, how do you reconcile that issue with um, sort of the issues providing humanitarian aid infrastructure or an assistance in a place where um, ideal, ideologically and uh, structurally it's very different? Thank you. Sorry, we can't, I don't think the audience can hear. Okay, again, um, my name is Zora and I'm a PhD candidate at King's College London. Um, I have two questions. One of them is that um, the military and the political actors in Afghanistan, after eight years of trial and error, seems to have come to some sort of an agreement on what success in Afghanistan looks like to them, their aim that they want to achieve. They have a, a little bit of more clarity on it. What is the aim of uh, the international development actors in Afghanistan? What would succeed, success in Afghanistan mean to, mean to them? That's one question. The second question, very quick, is uh, it is often said in Afghanistan that uh, one of the major reasons for insecurity, for insurgency there, is uh, this deep sense of um, lack of satisfaction towards the government. Uh, the, the, where the Afghan government is seen as very, very corrupt. And this Afghan government and the civil society are the ones that are spending the aid money. So how does this issue of aid money being spent through a corrupt government that then creates an insecu insecurity, how does this cycle uh, act on, uh, on, on the aid engagement in Afghanistan? Okay, thank you very much. And as, um, I think, yes, I've got to follow up to this, yeah. I'll be quick. Uh, my name is Abdurrahman Sharif. I actually represent an organization called the Muslim Charities Forum, which is uh, an umbrella organization for Muslim NGOs based in the UK. Um, my question are more related to the NGO and uh, humanitarian sector, uh, and in the sense of uh, also interrelation between what's happening in the UK and also in the countries where most of the organizations are, uh, are working. Um, in the UK, actually, there are 56 Muslim NGOs, and the same amount in the US as well. The biggest Western-based Muslim organizations are based uh, controversially in, uh, in the UK and in the US. Uh, my question is that uh, there is a feeling that uh, there is a lack of dialogue between uh, this type of civil society in the UK with the other non-governmental organizations in this country and in the West in general. Um, and this somehow uh, contributes to, uh, um, to, uh, to, to, to this climate of, of uh, negative perceptions that are made of Muslim organizations and Muslim uh, charities in Western countries. Negatively as well, I think, uh, affecting uh, the countries uh, like Afghanistan and Somalia where uh, the opposite happens, where Western organizations uh, tend to be uh, interpreted as vehicles of uh, uh, Western governments and uh, under the uh, anti-terror uh, legislation. So uh, my question is, first of all, how can this uh, uh, civil society in the West contribute to change this climate of uh, negative uh, perceptions? And uh, secondly, um, to the in, re in relation to this, my, 
my opinion and my, 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 my view is that uh, it's difficult also to foresee the end result. We're talking about dialogue, we're talking about the uh, negative aspects uh, of uh, counterterrorism legislation, but uh, in, in saying that, it's difficult to understand what we want to achieve uh, at the end for that. So, Thank you. Um, we have about seven minutes to, so I'd, I'd like to ask our, our panel to be brief. What? Yes, okay. Ah, One more question. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Giovanni, and I'm a student of Peace and Conflict Studies. And uh, my question is for, um, well, for Ms. Elizabeth Winter. Um, from your report, it seems that the angels in Afghanistan are uh, taken in a stage, in a stage by, the, uh, by the donors, because they can really speak out or helping the Taliban or dialogue with the Taliban. You said only one NGO uh, does this. Um, I know for sure that an emergency one Italian NGO who doesn't take any fund by the UN or by the government uh, is free to push their uh, agenda. It means a dialogue with the Taliban or uh, uh, giving them uh, uh, medical cure. What I want to ask you is uh, should NGO change their uh, own way to take the fund uh, funding, I mean financial funding so they can be more neutral and push their agenda rather than sometimes to be just a tender from the UNO child or from the donors uh, and then just be a kind of business group who just provides some kind of job. Thank you. Very pertinent. Um, so on the first question, which was um, about humanitarian aid and Somalia, would you like to take that one, um, Sally? Yes, I will do. Thank you. Um, Unfortunately, I'm very far from having an answer. Um, the, 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 the need for humanitarian assistance in Somalia has, has never been greater. Um, there's, there's a catastrophic need, and the opportunities for delivering it have got fewer and fewer and fewer um, as the um, international strategy to install a, a government in Somalia has progressed. So all I can say is that in terms of results, um, you know, the idea that if we have a government or if there was a government in Somalia, it would be easier to deliver humanitarian assistance is a, a formulation that, that is demonstrably not, not proving to be the case. Certainly if you try to install a government that, that, that is then resisted, uh, humanitarian space will get smaller and uh, the opportunities will be fewer. And that's really the situation that, um, that, that, that Somalis face at the moment. I don't know if David's able to say anything on this, but I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a catastrophic problem um, because the humanitarian work that has been going on, or has been going on actually for a very long time, quietly using um, you know, local organizations, you know, a lot of well-established distribution arrangements, networks, ICRC, all sorts of organizations quietly getting on with work in Somalia and doing this, have now come to be seen as enemies by association with the, with, the, with the outside world. So just at this time, it's really hard to see an answer, um, except that that humanitarian assistance you know, is, is, is still desperately needed. And the hope has to be that in whatever way things shake down in Somalia, um, people outside will be imaginative enough to try and provide assistance in any way they can, rather than waiting until a day when a government that we would like to see as a government was in place. Thank you. Um, our next question was on Afghanistan. Um, what was the aim of international development 
in Afghanistan and how to marry this, what is the relationship between dissatisfaction with the government um, and then why is it spend aid money on a government that people are dissatisfied with for corruption? I'll try and answer this very quickly and perhaps pursue it with you afterwards if necessary. I'm not sure I agree with you that the military and political actors have, a, have to come to an agreement, but putting that on one side, I think the aim of development is the same as anywhere else. That Afghans should have a satisfying and peaceful life in which their basic needs are met. And a quick gallop through how that can happen, I think, education of all kinds, programs providing employment, evaluation of programs, capacity development, support which allows Afghan actors to grow in the way that they want to, and community peace building and other uh, kinds of peace building are all things that I think that we should be looking into. In terms of um, Afghan government um, and spending money through them, this is a huge challenge. Not, um, I mean, it's a challenge to all of us, but uh, putting money through a system that one feels is corrupt is, is an amazing problem. I think there are various ways in which we can uh, address it. We, that is the international community, we've got to be very challenging. We've got to stand up to uh, the corrupt bits of the government. We've got to continue to support those, those bits that are perhaps not corrupt, because I don't think the whole of the cabinet or the whole of the government is corrupt. We've got to do things like putting in accountants who can actually track the money and produce the evidence to say you are being corrupt, the money is disappearing and therefore we are not going to continue to put it through you. Uh, strengthening civil society to hold governments to account is another way forward as well and, and that's a whole issue in itself. Okay, and I think I'll actually ask David to answer the last two which were about how can NGOs contribute to um, challenging the negative perception of Muslim charities and um, how you know should NGOs change the way they take funding so they can actually maintain a more autonomous agenda so they're both sort of sort of related um, in terms of that first question I, I think you, you raise a really important point and I think it challenges what, what is increasingly recognized that <coughs> much of humanitarianism and the humanitarian system that we work within is very much a, a northern construct run by particularly northern American and um, Western European ideas, organizations, policies, and, and, a, and a real need to challenge that and look at a way that the humanitarian system should be much more inclusive, um, engaging much more seriously with the Islamic humanitarian world. One um, initiative that is, has been set up particularly to do that is the Humanitarian Forum. And I think the work of the Humanitarian Forum that endeavor, aims to bring together uh, a whole range of humanitarian actors to, to have a much more inclusive and integrated humanitarian system, looking at some of the values of the humanitarian system itself uh, on what does neutrality and um, impartiality mean in Islamic context and where does solidarity and other ideas that are very important in many Islamic contexts really influence the humanitarian endeavor. So I, th I think there are initiatives, there is progress underway, but you raise a really important point. And I think, you, the, it, for me, uh, certainly within the Red Cross world, we ever more raises the, the critical importance that we, within our Red Cross family, reach out and, ha and have stronger alliances with the Red Crescent constituency who have such a critical role to play. Um, and in terms of your last second question, Absolutely, I think it is a real challenge to us in the in, in um, not so much where the source of aid comes from, because the reality is for so many of us, certainly international aid actors, 
we are very much um, recipients of, of government aid, but that it's more how that aid is delivered in a neutral, impartial, and independent way. And the, as I mentioned in my, my comments, the real critical challenge to separate us and what we deliver from the political objectives and military objectives of often the countries we come from. Thank you very much. Um, I think we'll finish there. We, we're having a reception afterwards, which is open to everybody. There'll be wine and nibbles, and as I mentioned, the books will also be on sale at a discount. And um, the issues that we've raised this evening, um, we can continue to debate them in a reception, and I think they're going to be continually cropping up um, over the next few years, because um, as I started out by saying, though the war and terror language may be disappearing, certainly the systems and practices and measures, the regulations, the legislation, the comprehensive approach um, involving a range of uh, actors is still there and uh, very much still there. So I'd like to close there and um, thank all the speakers for their very textured and rich um, discussions. Um, as I said, there's a wealth of experience here um, on a range of different countries, and um, I do urge you to, to join us at the reception afterwards um, to discuss further. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.